0: One of the fascinating people that God brought into my life when I first became a believer was a man named Stretch. Uh, When I first came to Jesus, I had kind of an insatiable curiosity about the Bible and doctrine and all these kinds of questions. And a friend of mine said he knew this guy, knew his Bible really well, and it happened to be Stretch. And Stretch, my friend and I would meet in the park, and I would ask questions, and he would provide answers and over the course of time, I discovered that Stretch was a street person. He came out of the Jesus movement and felt that he was called to, to reach um, the street people of Denver, the homeless. They were his friends, and he was one of them. And every once in a while, we actually started a Bible study that Stretch would teach, and we reached a bunch of people in our high school And as kind of one of the projects of the Bible study, we would on occasion go downtown and have our Bible study in the little park there across from the Capitol, And then we would walk the streets of Colfax, and Stretch would introduce us to people, explain what was going on, because that was his world. Those were his people. He he was called to the streets of the city, whether they were in Lakewood or Littleton or... uh, Downtown Denver. As time went on, I became involved in a church, a local church, Um, and and when I did, I discovered that Stretch's love for the city and its people was not shared by the church. At least the church I was part of. There was a a bit of a fortress mentality. In their mind, the church was a, a a place of escape, a place of protection. Um, a place of safety. Because, to be quite honest, when they looked at the city um, and the community at large, they saw it as a danger, as an enemy. And oftentimes they treated it with an attitude of disdain. This is our second in a series on rhythms around the world. We have spent a lot of time reworking our mission strategy as a church. And kind of the tagline for that mission strategy is uh, rhythms across the street and around the world. You know our rhythms are to transform, to see the kingdom come in us, to neighbor, to see the kingdom come in others, and restore to see the kingdom come in our world. And we believe missions is the call to take those rhythms and not only have them happen in our church, but to extend them all around the world. So uh, we came up actually with three key areas of focus for us as a church. One is local ministry, ministry in our community in the city. The second is development, uh, ministries like Compassion and Plant With Purpose that do environmental work, and Compassion obviously uh, sponsors kids around the world. And then the third area of focus is unreached Muslims. An unreached group is a a group of people that doesn't have access to the gospel. One of the largest groups of the unreached is the Muslim world. And that's our focus. And to be quite honest, through this series, we kind of have a goal to help you know, to help you understand what's going on in the world, to motivate you to, to pray Uh, and get involved on a prayer level with what God is doing in the world to motivate you to give, whether that's adopting a a compassion kid or adopting a missionary that you're going to support, or even go full-time or at least on a a short-term vision trip to capture what's happening. And last week, we looked at the Great Commission. And if you were here, if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to listen to that message because it kind of lays out how we see missions uh, and I think might give you some fresh insight into the Great Commission. It's, it's really not a commission that is telling us in, to go and get people to make decisions for Jesus. It's a commission that is telling us to go and create disciples, in other words, followers who obey Him completely. And it assumes that every one of us is to be involved in that because it says, as you go, assuming that if we're a follower of Jesus, obviously we're going to be on mission. And his mission is to reach all the nations of the world. In fact, uh, we, we said, what we should tell people is God loves you and has a wonderful plan to reach all the nations of the world for his glory. And we get to be a part of it. And hopefully you caught that last, last week. This morning, I want us to look at local missions and ask the question why? Why should we be involved in local missions? I thought missions was something we did over there that it has to be cross-cultural perhaps overseas and I think the calling for missions is not just over there but here as well. I think sometimes we wish it was just over there because if it was we could simply pray and give money And kind of, you know, that's the extent of our involvement. But when you begin talking about local missions, the the challenge is not simply to pray and give money, but to get involved. So I want to look at Acts 1-8, just for a moment. We're not going to spend a lot of time there. But you kind of get a vision and pick up Jesus' vision of what missions encompassed in Acts 1-8 says there, remember Jesus has just been resurrected, he's talking to his disciples, kind of laying out the game plan for the church moving forward, and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, well they're in Jerusalem, Jerusalem is their city, Jerusalem is their community, and it's interesting, his notion of being witnesses, he's saying, you're going to be my missionaries, and the place it's going to start is your hometown, in a sense, your own community in Jerusalem, And then in Judea, which is kind of like the state, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So missions is not just something that's foreign or over there. It is that. But there are concentric circles, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So we have a call to be involved in local missions. So here's my question for you this morning. What is your heart like for our community, and our city. You know what's really cool about the hub? If you go up the stairs, you can walk around the hub, and if you go up there at night and you look out the windows on this side, it's an incredibly cool view because you get a a vision, a view of the city of Denver and the metropolitan area. And I'm just curious... That if you walked up there tonight and you stood and it was a clear night and you could see down into the city and see all the metropolitan area, how would you respond? What, what goes through your mind and your heart when you think of the city? Do, do you just ignore it? Does the community in the city not even register? I, I think sometimes that happens to me. I get so involved and everything going on in my life, in my little world, in this church, that, uh, man, the last thing on my mind is the community or the city. There are some people who, if they stood up there and looked at the city and the metroplex, they would see it as the enemy. It's that godless society in rebellion. It's everything that is opposed to Christ. There are some people who would stand up there and look at the city, and it would scare them. Because they're scared of all the values and priorities and dangers that the city represents. They're scared for themselves. They're scared for their kids. Do you ever look at the city and the community and see it as a place of broken people, of hurting people, of struggling people? We always try to figure out why Stretch loved the city. Stretch loved the city because he understood its brokenness because he had experienced it himself. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, he understood the radical difference Jesus could make in their lives because he understood the radical difference Jesus had made in his life. Do we ever look on the city and the community with this, the, this sense of compassion? With this sense of calling with this sense that God has put us on mission in this place for those people. When I think about Stretch and his passion for the city I'm reminded of how Jesus responded to the city. Um, Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the premier religious city of the day was home to the political elite, the religious leaders. It it was perhaps the center of worship for the world at that moment in time because it's where the temple was located. It's interesting, when Jesus looks on Jerusalem, and you can actually stand on the Mount of Olives and look down and see the whole metropolitan, in a sense, area of Jerusalem, (laughs) Especially what was the metropolitan area of his day. You can see it all from the Mount of Olives. And at one point, as Jesus is making his way, he's going to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die. He knows knows how the city is going to respond to him. He knows that the city is going to reject him. Uh, He knows that the people there are going to reject him and eventually murder him. And it is fascinating when he's standing on the Mount of Olives looking at the city of Jerusalem how he responds. Look at Luke 19. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Now get this. He's not weeping for himself. Oh, they're going to kill me. He's weeping for the city. Weeping for the city. I want us to notice a couple of things. He does not see the city as his enemy, though it's going to kill him in a sense. It has killed the prophets and stoned them. Uh, um will we'll carry out his own crucifixion. He sees the city, if you study the passage around this, he sees the, the city of Jerusalem in need of peace or, or, or shalom. And he knows that he is the answer to that peace, that they're, they're ultimately looking for him. He's the key to that blessing. He responds to the city and it breaks his heart. There are very few times in the Gospels where Jesus weeps. One is when he sees Lazarus dead in the response of the sisters and he weeps. The other is here. He weeps for the city of Jerusalem. I like the quote by Michael Metzger. He's part of the Clapham Institute. It's a a, a think tank for uh, Christian issues. I didn't get to put it on the slide. Listen. It says, when confronted with the corruption of our world, Christians ought to be provoked to engage, not offended, and withdrawn. It's what often happens. We look at the city and the community and its brokenness and all the terrible things happen there, and and rather than, than being provoked to engage, we withdraw, and we treat it as if it's offended us. But Jesus weeps as he... (laughs) Jesus weeps, and then you know what he does? He enters its gates. He's provoked to engage. So my question this morning is, if we have a heart for the city, if we develop this passion for our community, if that is part of... Uh, what god does in our heart as we we see his heart and it gets a hold of our heart as it should as we develop this passion and this this desire to see the city transformed how do we go about that And, and to answer that question i want us to go back into the old testament into the book of jeremiah at this moment uh jerusalem has been sacked attacked by the Assyrians, whose capital is Babylon. And the Assyrians, uh, to subjugate people, what they did is they would conquer a city and then they would take out of that city the elites, the leaders, the craftsmen. They would bankrupt the city and they'd haul those people off to Babylon. And the goal was once they got into Babylon was to assimilate them into their culture. They would give them some of the best jobs. They would give them a position of power. And that would just help them assimilate because they want to climb the ladder. They'd take on the Babylonian culture. They'd be educated in the Babylonian schools. They would be part of the power structure. And they knew if they assimilated them, there was no worry of rebellion. The whole book of Daniel is about people who have been taken from Jerusalem to Babylon that Babylon is trying to assimilate. Okay? Okay? Now, what's happening at this point is they are outside the city of Babylon. They have set up a temporary residence. And and some of the prophets are coming to them and telling the people, hey, uh, don't put down any roots. Don't engage the culture. Don't involve yourself in the city. Because in a couple years, God's going to come and rescue you. And Jeremiah the prophet is saying, hey, who's ever telling you that is wrong. They're not hearing God, because you're going to be there for a while. And he, he gives them this letter um, where God speaks. And I want us to listen to this letter, and it has some great advice about how you transform the community. So I've asked Melissa to come read Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14.
1: This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the Queen Mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans, had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah king of Judah sent to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope And a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks, Melissa. I want to highlight five things that I think are part of the strategy that God lays out for them as they're in Babylon, okay? And I think they apply to us. The first is this. It's under the notion of mission. In verse 4, it says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. I want you to notice there, he says, uh, um, he doesn't say the Babylonians carried you into exile. Did you notice that? He says, I carried you into exile. In in other words, uh, they don't see this, but the fact is they are on mission from God to accomplish His purpose. One of the things that God promised to do to the descendants of Abraham is to use them as a blessing for the world. And and although they see it as the destruction of their whole world and way of life, God is saying, now, now it's time for you to be a blessing to the world. And that's exactly what you're going to be to the Babylonians. They are on mission. By the way, it is from these exiles most likely that the wise men, who come to show up after Jesus is born, where their descendants or, or their ancestors find out about the coming of this Messiah. That's where that knowledge of this coming Messiah came for. I think one of the things we have to understand in life is we have to kind of undergo a change in perspective. And it's this notion that God is not simply working in us, but He is also working through us. God's agenda is bigger than our personal comfort or our individual circumstances or our success. Uh, Remember, if you go back last week, we said God has this, this, He does love us and He has this plan, but the plan isn't a wonderful plan for our lives. The plan is that God is doing something in the world to take the truth of the gospel to every nation and we get to play a part of that. If we believe that, then we begin to see that, that no matter what we're doing, we can be on mission. That God has called us to be the very place we're to be. I think a lot of times what we do in our lives is we have this secular, sacred divide. So this part of our, our, our life is, is secular. It's, it's our business life. It's a lot of our family and, and community. And then there's this sacred part, you know, when we come to church or we do ministry. And that's a false dichotomy. There's not a secular side to life and a sacred side to life. It's all sacred. God's infused in all of it. And God has you in the neighborhood He has you, and the job He has you, and the community He has you, and the relationships He has you, because they're a platform for His agenda to be accomplished in terms of the big picture agenda of the world. Now, we might not see the direct connection... To the big plan, but it's there. He's in the business of bringing about His kingdom and the restoration of all things, eventually cataclysmically at the end. But if we're faithful and obedient, then we can infuse every part of our lives with meaning because we can do it for the King and the kingdom. I'm in a a business group called Convene. It's been an awesome group. They're business leaders. And one of the continual things I hear these guys tell me is that their business is their business, and they try to infuse Christian principles in it. But then ministry is ministry, and there's this underlying notion that if they can can somehow put time into ministry, then that really has significance. And this business stuff that that's just a way to make money and a living, and fuel ministry. That's not true. Uh, one of the guys in the group, a friend of mine that I really like, really like this guy, his name's Dave. He's just brilliant. He's a marketing guy. He's the most creative person I ever met. And he's talking about all this creative marketing stuff. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I, I want to do this prison ministry. And I go, do the prison ministry, but quit talking about this stuff. Not matter. You make this huge... We need you in the advertising world to be a Christian and proclaim the kingdom there and do it from a Christian perspective. And that's part of the mission, part of the kingdom. And that has as much significance as prison ministry. And he just can't get it. And I keep beating on him. Not nicely. He's got to get it. Look, God calls you to be a teacher that's kingdom business. God calls you to be a nurse, that's kingdom business. God calls you to be a lawyer, that's kingdom business. God calls you to be a plumber, that can be kingdom business. Because your heart, your attitude, you see God's will be done in every area of life, that's part of the bigger mission. Now go beyond that. Do ministry and all that kind of stuff. But don't discount the day-to-day part of your life because if we think correctly about it, our jobs become part of our calling. God has you in the job you're in by His divine design, not by accident. So the question then becomes is how are you going to use that job and the relationships in that job and the gifts and talents you bring to that job in such a way to further His kingdom and bring about His will? God has you in the neighborhood you live in. Not just because you happen to like the house and the schools and the location. That's great. It's probably irrelevant. God has you in that neighborhood because of the relationships that you can develop to your neighbors. Now if you just cocoon and it's your place of safety and your place of escape, you're missing the opportunity to reach into the fabric of the community and make a difference for Jesus. You know, that, that means you're going to have to talk to your neighbors. Th- that means you might even have to know their names. It means you might want to throw a party and invite them. We threw a party, we had two of them. We have neighbors in front of us. We live in our cul de sac, and we have neighbors in the back, so we threw two parties. And it was really interesting the response because I was all nervous about throwing these parties that people wouldn't want to come. Number one, and two, if they got there, they thought it would be lame. Everybody wanted to come. This was the middle of summer. Everybody came except one. they were on vacation. Everybody else came. And the thing they said, oh, oh, thank you for doing this. Thank you for doing this. We want to get to know the people around us. We just don't know how we should do this. It was, it was fabulous. And now I know the names of all my neighbors. And we're going to do it again. Because we're on mission in that neighborhood to make a difference. It's part of our calling. It's by design. By design. Second, first thing is to understand your mission. The second thing is to be challenged to engage, engagement. Verse 5 says this. It says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Jeremiah is saying, look, uh, get fully engaged, invest in real estate, buy property, build houses, get involved in the economy, marry, become part of the fabric of the culture. And you say, wait, isn't, isn't that what the Babylonians want? They, they just want you to assimilate? Don't, they just want you to lose your identity? Well, well, God doesn't want them to lose their identity, but neither does he want them to simply disengage. Uh, um. They want to think, oh, my engagement, my, my time here is just temporary. And you say, no, it's going to be a while. In fact, it's going to be a generation. All you guys alive now probably will be gone when I bring them back. You, you see, the danger, I think, for us as believers at times is what I, I'm going to label tribalism. Tribalism is when you identify your people and your crowd. And that's oftentimes what we do as a community of believers, we identify our people in our crowd. And then <laughs> we just act for the benefit of our people in our crowd, and that's all we hang out with. I mean, we, we make make forays into the community or forays into the city, but usually we do that for our benefit. That was the temptation for these Jews. They wanted to stay out the side of their, their, the city, develop this little enclave, and then they wanted to kind of do forays of business so that they could kind of use the city economically for their benefit, then retreat back into their little enclave. They just wanted to, to use the city and use the community for its benefits, but they didn't really want to engage and become part of the fabric. I think that happens to us unintentionally for a host of reasons. One is busyness. I I look at my own life, I get so consumed with ministry activities and church activities that I don't have time to develop relationships with those outside my little tribe. And I become isolated, not intentionally, but unintentionally. You know, and you begin thinking about work schedules and all the kids' activities, and you need some time to rest and recreate, and suddenly you don't have any time, so you narrow your tribe to just your family and a few church friends, and you disengage. Some of it is perspective. Sometimes we think, I think, I should say, sometimes the church thinks that our job in the community is simply to win people to Jesus, and that's it. It's kind of like the, the community or the city is this dirty lake, right? And all we're supposed to do is, is to catch fish out of the dirty lake. And if we do that, we've, we've, done, we've fulfilled our, our, our calling. But hopefully you're picking up that if we're really about the, the kingdom, it's not about catching fish out of the dirty lake, It's about catching fish, but it's also about going and cleaning up the lake. Because the day is going to come when the lake gets cleaned. And we can be part of that now. Sometimes we engage in tribalism out of fear. We're afraid that if we engage, we will get tainted or corrupted. And maybe... Oftentimes it's not fear about us, it's fear about our kids. We, we want to create our own tribe that's safe, right? So, so our kids won't get corrupted. So our, our kids won't get tainted. And I understand that that's a huge tension. Uh, um, how do you be salt and light and, and be a good parent? And I think every family has to figure out how they play that out. But I don't think fear is a justifiable excuse for disengagement. Jesus says, not to be of the world, but you're to be in the world. Well, that isn't true just for adults. It's true for all of us. So how do I take my kids and train them to be in the world, but not of the world. Just disengaging them isn't necessarily good training. So what we can do is can, we can inoculate them so that when they get the real thing, we think they'll be safe, but we've only given them a little taste of the real thing and they don't know how to operate in the real world out there. And I'm not telling you where you should educate your kids or any of that, I'm just saying... Think long-term, you're to raise capable adults who can engage the world and be salt and light. What's your strategy for accomplishing that? Because that's the calling. You see, and if we do disengage, what we end up doing is we end up using the community in the city to, to get out of it what we want, what we benefit, its economic opportunities, its infrastructure, its entertainment, its protection, but we're really never engaged in building it. And you know what happens when we disengage? You can't help but not disdain. Because we begin to think our tribe's superior. We've kind of got our act together. We're just a little bit, we don't say this, but boy, people feel it. We, we just are a little bit better. And that's not true. Believe me, that's not true. i got news for you. The church is broken and messed up and has as many struggles and problems, people inside the church, as those outside the church. Because we're human beings that are fallen and sinful. So engage. He says, realize you're on mission. Engage. Third, distinctiveness. It's interesting what he says. He says to them, increase in number there, do not decrease. Now, now, here's what the Babylonians were hoping for. They'd, they were hoping, we're going to get you into our culture. We're going to give you good jobs. We're going to put you into the education system. And, and once you get in there to maintain your position and to climb the ladder, you'll become more and more like us. You'll take on our values. You'll take on our priorities. And over time, you'll become just like us. And when you're just like us, You'll cease to have a separate identity and we'll assimilate you and then you'll just be Babylonian. And God is saying, don't let that happen. I want you to increase, in the, I, I want your identities to increase at the same time you're engaged. It's this incredible tension. On the one he's hand he's saying, engage. On the other hand he's saying, be distinct. We live in the tension." Jesus picks up this same tension in the New Testament. He calls us to be both salt and light. Salt is distinctive and transformative. Everything it touches is impacted. Light shows out. And what's he say about the salt? Don't lose your saltiness. What he says about, in other words, don't lose your distinctive. What's he say about the light? Don't hide it under a bushel. Don't disengage. He, He says we're to be an alternative city In the midst of every city, we're to be an alternative community in the midst of every community. We're we're to not to be isolated, but engaged, yet radically different in terms of our values, in terms of our priorities, in terms of our way of thinking. We're to be a counterculture within the culture. We're to be a community that that is distinct. We're to be a community that is radically generous that cares about the poor, that cares about the immigrant, that cares about the homeless, that cares about the prisoner. Think how radical that is to the community and the culture we live in where we're taught that everything we earn is for our, cons- cons- uh, for our consumption. We're, we're to have this different value that says, no, everything we have is not ours, it's His, and we're to use it for His purposes. We're to be a community where position and success are not the measure of life. We're to be a community where power is not see, seen as something simply to obtain for your own benefit and self-interest, but where power is used to serve and to love others. We're, we're to be a community that has at its heart the love and welfare of others. We're, we're to be a community where character and integrity are top priorities, I was meeting with one of the employees in my wife's business this week and we were talking about how to increase sales. And one of the things she had on her paper is you have to decide whether you want to have integrity or profitability. And I thought that's no decision. We we have to have integrity. Pro- profitability is optional. But integrity is not. Why? Because that's who we are. That's who my wife is. That's part of why we do the business. She makes artificial eyes and noses. And part of the reason she does that is to, to provide that for people who can't afford that. It's not just to make money. We're going to be a kind of community that's distinct because we have deep relationships and people are the highest priority. Where we love even the social outcasts and the unlovable got a little exercise for you. If you sit down with a piece of paper and at the top put this question, what is different about me? How would you answer that question? What if you did an inventory? What would you discover is different? Your priorities, the way you use money, your relationships, values, your language, your demeanor. How you do business, how you exercise compassion, your attitude. Then turn the paper over and write this question Does anybody notice? Th- that little exercise will rock your world. Okay, so you're on mission, you're to engage but be distinct. The last thing is you're to seek shalom. Verse 7 says, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because it prospers, you will prosper. This notion of shalom, we typically think of it as peace, as a sensation of hostilities. But in the Old Testament, shalom is this very rich word um, that means flourishing. It, it means this, uh, this place where everything is the way it should be. Understand, God's purpose in history is not simply to save people, but ultimately to bring universal shalom to make things the way they should be. Now here's what's radical. <laughs> He's saying, look, Jewish remnant, I want you to engage in the city, maintain your distinctiveness, and I want you to work for the common good, for the shalom of the city. And they're going, wait a second, you know, the Babylonians, they're the ones who killed our relatives. The, the Babylonians, they're They're, they're idolaters. The Babylonians, you don't understand their values and they're they're totally upside down. And this is a world of exiles and all kinds of different uh, uh, religious in the city of Babylon because they did this. It's a fractured society. And you want us to go in there and do what? We want you to work for shalom. We want you to work for the common good. You see, life cannot just be about us. But oftentimes we live like it is. What that means is where there is homelessness, we want to provide shelter. Where there is hunger, we want to provide food and clothing. Where there is unemployment, we want to provide job centers and create employment opportunities. Where there's child abuse, we want to start parenting classes. Where there's rampant divorce, we want to create marriage mentors. Where there's addictions, we want to start 12-step groups. Where there's a, a bad education system, we, we want to start alternative schools for the marginalized and the forgotten. Where there's racism, we want to build bridges to those who are different than us. Where there's literacy, we want to teach people how to read. Where there's immigrants that don't know English, we want to st- start English as second language class. I mean, All that's part of the calling of the church. All that is part of the calling of Christians because we're called to do something about the common good. Why are we involved in local missions and all of those kinds of things? It's because we believe that the calling is on us to create shalom. In Isaiah 65, you get a picture of what shalom looks like. There's great public health and there's celebration, there's happiness and there's housing and there's food for all and there's an absence of violence and there's meaningful work and you see the whole community transformed. All that is kingdom work. Say, how can we do that? That's dangerous work. Well, notice the last thing he says in verse 10. This is what the Lord says when 78 years are completed, I will come back and fulfill my promise to bring you back, for I know the plans I have for you plans to prosper and not to harm you. Remember last week I said, when you're on mission, that's when the promise is that God is with you. See, here's the point when we come into a relationship with Jesus, the one who dies for us even though we're broken, he fulfills all our ultimate needs and promises to take care of us and because of that we no longer have to live for number one we can live and serve others in the community we can give our life away because we know that we're giving it away into his hands and he will take care of us and take care of our kids and take care of our interests doesn't mean life will always work out the way we want it to. It does mean that God will accomplish his mission and we will fulfill his purpose. And if we live that way, we can love and love and love and serve and serve and love and serve and, and not look back. Because we know God has our back. That's the promise of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, help us be people and help us be a church that works for shalom in our world, that works for the common good of our community and our city. Help us see our whole life under the rubric of your kingdom, under the design of your kingdom, under the the design of your call on us. And help us do ministry in such a way that people take note and glorify our Father. Lord, make us that kind of church. Make us that kind of people. We pray in his name. Amen.